We begin this fifth week in our Bible study series that Pastor Jack has titled Crisis, Christ, and You during these unprecedented and challenging times of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. As we've been looking at this notion of crisis and looking at the various scriptures and for this week uh, leading to the sermon that Jack will be preaching on on next Sunday, the 17th of May, we'll be looking at the key focus of when the going gets tough. What happens when the going gets tough? What does God do and what is the response of God's people and how are we to respond when things get difficult and tough in our life and in the world around us? We'll be looking at the Exodus in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, uh, when the Israelites departed from Egypt, and then we'll look at the New Testament in 1 Corinthians as the Apostle Paul uh, ponders and, and, and prays with and uh, speaks to the church at Corinth. And so let us uh, look to the Lord in prayer as we always need the uh, guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit as we open up sacred scripture. Let us pray. Most gracious and loving Father, we give you thanks and praise that in this season, in this challenging time, O Lord, we can be encouraged and transformed by your word in Holy Scripture, that we can gather by Bible study and in Bible study to look into your word as your spirit teaches us. We pray, O Lord, that you would lead us into all wisdom and truth that you would fill us with your love and that you would guide us, O Lord, and convict us in our hearts and in our lives. And this week, O Lord, as we look in your holy word in the book of Exodus and in 1 Corinthians, might you, O Lord, teach us of your steadfast love that indeed when life gets difficult and challenging, remind us, O Lord, that you are with us. Help us to lean upon you I pray, O Lord, for all of my sisters and brothers in Christ, for your church, as each one and all, O Lord, seek to be faithful and uh, seek to know you more deeply. I pray, O Lord, for each one of them and for their loved ones and indeed for your church's witness. Might all that is said and done be well-pleasing to you. We pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everyone says, Amen. Well, friends, our scripture reading for this week, first in Exodus chapter 13, beginning with verse 17, continuing through chapter 14, verse 4, and then chapter 14, verses 19 through 23, and then 26 through 29. And then we'll jump to 1 Corinthians. So first, the book of Exodus. Let us hear and receive the word of the Lord. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. 
the Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. They set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with a darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and chariot drivers. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. We then go to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and then verses 12 through 13. Once again, let us hear and receive the word of the Lord. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So, if you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. 
No testing has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, He will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Friends, this is the Word of God for the people of God, holy wisdom, holy words. And everyone says, thanks be to God. Well, in these past uh, four weeks and now into this fifth week, Pastor Jan and I have been teaching alternating weeks on, on this Bible study and sermon series that Pastor Jack has been preaching on, Crisis, Christ, and You. This is a time of, of crisis during these unprecedented and challenging times of the COVID-19 coronavirus global pandemic as all of our lives have been upended and we've been trying to figure out how to carry on with the rhythms of life, whatever those rhythms are. And for us pastors and, and lay leaders, ministering in different ways, such as these Bible studies and our uh, various meetings that have taken on a different shape. And nevertheless, even though that we are scattered as a church, we are still the church we are still in ministry with each other, sharing the love and life and light of Jesus Christ. And so we saw how the word crisis, its, its origin, the etymology of crisis, which means decision. And historically, uh, crisis, the Greek word crisis, was that time of a decision that was to be made. It was Crisis was a, a time in one's illness when the doctor and the patient were to make an important decision based on the prognosis, whether it was the, the patient was on the trajectory of getting better or on a trajectory of getting worse. And so there was a decision that was to be made. And so that's what crisis means, a decision to be made. And so... We've been looking at this notion that in, the, in a time of crisis, in a, in a pivot point, what is God's decision and what is our response to our circumstances and to what God is doing? And when God is acting, how are we to respond? And hopefully that our response is one towards worship, towards service, uh, towards loving God and, and loving neighbor. Well, this week and looking towards what Pastor Jack will be preaching on from these texts in Exodus and 1 Corinthians, the focus is on when the going gets tough. What happens when things get much more difficult? When we as God's children, as God's people, are facing difficulty and, and challenges? When the going gets tough, what is God's response and what is the response of of God's people, when God's people are literally, as we'll see in Exodus, are literally caught between a rock and a hard place, or between two walls, the watery walls of the Red Sea. What is God up to in the midst of our time of crisis and our challenging times of life? What is God up to, and how do we discern God's presence, God's plan, and God's path forward. It's hard to do that. 
There's some popular approaches, popular quotes. You know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I put it in your outline also here. This popular quote that's attributed to uh, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, the late Prime Minister of, of Great Britain, who said, if you're going through hell, keep going. For those of you who have financial investments in the stock market, there's also that, that uh, uh, word of wisdom. When the going gets tough, the tough buy blue chips, right? Those safe stocks, the ones that you can sort of trust that's uh, time-tested. Time those blue chip stocks like Coca-Cola and, and GE. And so whatever those sayings are, right, when the going gets tough, what happens? And Holy Scripture has much to teach us and much to instruct us. The Spirit imparts wisdom upon our hearts when we feel challenged, when we feel like giving up, when we feel in despair and in doubt. Holy Scripture, God's Word is is the answer for us and to and to teach us how God operates, how God works and why God works. And even though we don't always fully know God's plans, what we do know is sufficient to take us through. And so let's look at 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 these scripture passages and we'll first note some theological insights in these scripture passages. We've said before of how there are two predominant themes in Scripture of the exodus and of exile. Exodus and exile. These are two major themes. The theme of exodus. Um, exodus, which means exit, right? Or to depart. We see this theme of exodus in, 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 in places where there's deep challenge. For instance, think about Adam and Eve. They exited the garden. God made them exit the garden. They left. They left. Or we'll see like here the exodus um, when the Israelites departed Egypt. When God led them through the leadership of Moses. God led them out. Right? So that theme of exodus, um, that, is a, that is one uh, biblical theme. That when um, you are pressed on both sides. Uh, think of people departing. Think of refugees that are uh, departing uh, their homeland for, for safety. Uh, Syrians who have been displaced in our own time seeking refuge. There's an exodus. Um, and so that's one response, right? That when you're challenged, when we're challenged, uh, we leave. Uh, people who are in in abusive relationships, they'll leave, they'll they'll depart. And so that's one way to respond to a time of challenge when the going gets tough. One leaves. The other predominant theme and another uh, biblical response is exile, exile to remain. We saw this, for instance, in our Bible studies, uh, the book of Jeremiah, 
last year. Uh, to be an exiled people, to be exiled is to remain right where, where you're at. In the book of Jeremiah, how we saw, remember that God's people was called to remain in Babylon, to remain in, in present-day Iraq, um, to, to bloom and to grow where you're planted, so to speak. To be in exile is to remain in the place of challenge, not to leave it, but to stay right there. Oftentimes, that place of of challenges right at the margins, not at the center, but at the margins. And so we'll see this, we'll see this notion of being an exilic people in a, an exilic community in the New Testament church at Corinth. So, for, so first let's look at the text in Exodus as we read Exodus 13 and Exodus 14. This text is a familiar one as as God is taking his people out of Egypt and they're escaping. They're escaping. They are departing the clutches of Pharaoh after their enslavement from Pharaoh. And so this is one response, one biblical response to depart. It is a faithful response. God is leading them out. They are responding. God has instructed Moses to, to lead them out. And to depart requires a careful and prayerful discernment. Now, I note here in, the, um, in your outline that we in the United States can easily, uh, you know, when we think of, of what's happening, um, you know, these texts that, that tell us here that um, God could have, could have led the people one way, the easy way, through the land of the Philistines, pretty straightforward along the sea, along the Mediterranean Sea, or the eventual route of where the Lord um, brought them, the more circuitous, the longer route, the southward route through the wilderness. So we have these two, these two roads. And we in the United States can easily attach the popular theology that emanates from Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Remember those familiar final stanzas? Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled and that has made all the difference, right? We could think of that and we could often go towards that and Two roads, two possibilities for the Israelites, or perhaps we could consider our own options in our own lives when there's something difficult. Should I go this way or that? Should I leave or should I remain? Should I go this road or, or that road? And we can often think and think in those terms. Um, should we go in, in this road or that road? Should the Israelites have gone through the land of the Philistines or through the land of the land of wilderness, which they eventually took. And, and we'll see that in a few moments. In 2015, the New York Times poetry reviewer David Orr wrote a much quoted commentary on Frost's poem. The title of the commentary was The Most Misread Poem in America. Because we often think about this road, and, and sometimes people think of the title, 
or mistitle it The Road Less Traveled, when actually the poem is really, is, is the real title is The Road Not Taken. And we attach this notion of that there's two forks in the road and okay, I'll take this one and the road that is less traveled, it, it's actually much better than the other one. And we, in popular theology, the emphasis is on human agency, that I was presented two roads and so I took this one. And somehow the poem is misinterpreted and misread to say, okay, well, after I chose it, I'm now on this road and it turned out to be better. And the emphasis is on our choice and our individual choice. When rather, Robert Frost's poem is less on this particular road, as the poem's title suggests, the road not taken. The poet is thinking about the equality of both roads and that both roads were an equal choice and it's not so much about human agency, about individual choice, as it is more about the traveler on that road was pondering the other road, the road not taken. That what would have happened if we took the other road? And so it's less about human agency as more about human pondering, meditation, reflection upon equal choices. And so the Exodus passage disabuses our American popular theology of equal possibilities. Okay? I wanted to touch upon that Robert Frost poem because that can easily be where we go. That poem is so popular we we think about that in our in our in our in our um, in our regular day in our everyday thinking, those two roads. And the Exodus passage disabuses us from that notion of both options as equally possible because as we see in the text, that the two roads, either the road through the land of the Philistines or the southward route in, uh, through the wilderness, they were not equal options because the text was clear and is clear that God chose the road and directed very intentionally the path to which the Israelites would take, which was the more difficult road. God is very purposeful. And we see the purpose here in verse 17, that God chose the more circuitous route because if the people face war, that if they went through the land of the Philistines, they will surely face war with the Philistines. And if they do, they will, the Israelites, will be discouraged. Their minds will change. They'll say, let's go back to Egypt right away. Now we know, in knowing the rest of the story, that the Israelites will have that same sentiment in the wilderness. They'll say, oh, why don't we just go back to Egypt where we were fed and where there was drink? That being here in the wilderness, in this desert wilderness, we've been here for so long, um, you know, why don't we just go back now? And so even though that they'll eventually feel that way, God wanted to, 
wanted them to not be discouraged early on. And so rather than going the easy route, which probably would have taken, you know, several weeks, maybe a month or two, um, several months to go through the land of the Philistines and then to the promised land, um, he took them through the longer route that took more than 40 years through the desert wilderness. And eventually they will have that same grumbling heart as they would have if they went through the land of the Philistines. But God wanted them to not be discouraged too soon. Um, there's God's sense of humor, right? He knows the hearts of people. He knows our hearts. But he takes them through so that, and here's another reason, not only so that they won't be discouraged, but he wants to show forth his glory and his power because he will showcase how he will deliver them from Pharaoh, not only their actual exodus from, um, from Egypt, but how Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies will be dealt with in the Red Sea. He wants to display his power and his glory um, by taking them through. And so God is very purposeful. God is, is going to show forth uh, his intentions. Now here's the crux, that if, if, even if we granted the possibility that the Israelites travel through the land of the Philistines, God's promise and God's presence would still have accompanied them even in that route. Okay, so in, in that way, whether for hypothetically speaking, whether they did go on that route or, or, or this route, God's presence and God's promises would not be stifled. Okay, and that's important as well for us when the going gets tough. Whether we take this route or this path, this option or that option, God's promise and God's presence would still be with us. And so the text says that they departed from Egypt, they go to Sukkoth, they camp at Ehem, they carry Joseph's bones. Remember in our Bible study a few weeks ago, Joseph and his brothers and they're reconciled. The, the family of, of Jacob uh, goes to Egypt because in a time of famine. Again, that's God's providence at work. Um, they all are, are reunited. And in the closing verses in, in Genesis 50, uh, verses 24 through 26, we, we read there that, that Joseph is gathered with his brothers and he he wants to receive the assurance, the promise from them that they will carry his bones with them, that eventually their family will come to Egypt and from there they will depart Egypt and that they are to bring his bones to the land of their ancestors, to, the, to their ancestors of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, and so there we already see the covenantal promises of God that the family, the family of Jacob, remember Jacob is renamed Israel, that they will make it back to the promised land. They will go to Egypt and that they will, that his bones, Joseph's bones will be brought and will be buried in the land of their ancestors. So there's already the covenantal promise that God will take them, that even though that they'll end up in Egypt, they must return to the promised land because Joseph's bones are to be buried in the land of their ancestors. And so we know that to be sure. And God's people know, knows that for certain. That even though when the going gets tough and it looks like the outward evidence seems we're not going to make it, we're not going to make it to the promised land, 
No, be assured, because God's covenant, God's promises are sure. God's promises are sure as evidenced by this pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Okay, the image of pillar of strength. Um, these are visible assurances. These, these pillars of cloud by day and, and fire by night was God's visible presence that accompanied them through and through. Okay, these two pillars went in front of them, leading them. Now we read there in Exodus 14 that God directed Moses to tell the Israelites to camp in front of Pihahiroth. Pihahiroth means mouth of freedom. Okay, the, the mouth of the river, the mouth of the, of the gorge, um, the mouth of freedom that they are being freed. And uh, Pihahiroth uh, is believed to be located between two rocks. And, and so literally they were uh, between a rock and a hard place. And then they were to go between Migdol and the sea. Uh, Migdol was a fortified city. They were to go in front of Baal Zephon. Now, Baal Zephon was an ancient idol. And it was one of the last idols that was standing after the great plagues uh, that God displayed when Moses went to Pharaoh. Remember the, the plagues? Uh, the flies and the frogs, the uh, striking the firstborn and... Uh, breaking down the idols. Well, Baal Zephon was one of the last idols that was still standing. And the Israelites were to encamp right in front of it. Now, Baal Zephon, the fact that it was still standing, was so to show Pharaoh or to convince Pharaoh, to convince Pharaoh, to convict Pharaoh in his hard-heartedness and his hard-headedness, that the sight of this idol would, would convince Pharaoh, oh, the God of the Israelites is powerless because here is proof positive, here is this idol that's still standing. Uh, if, God had, if the God of the Israelites had destroyed all of the idols, why is this one still standing? We'll see later in Exodus chapter 14, verses 9 through 10, as the Israelites are are about to head through the Red Sea, there is Pharaoh's armies as they're nearing Baal Zephon. And, and Pharaoh becomes even more convinced and becomes more arrogant, even more so, when he sees Baal Zephon, um, thinking that, okay, if this idol is still standing, therefore the God of the Israelites must be powerless. Therefore, this, the God of the Israelites must be powerless to deliver the Israelites from my clutches, so let me go get them now, right? And so they're at Baal Zephon, and it looks like, okay, uh, they are, uh, that Pharaoh will, will capture them, and it's no, God is going to be displaying his power. So God is very purposeful and intentional of every place that God's people are called to go. Notice the movement of the angel of the Lord and the pillar of the cloud. They both move from the front of the line to the back. So rather than leading the Israelites at this point, they take an interposition between the Israelites and between the armies of Pharaoh. This is to indicate that God is protecting Israel. Uh, he literally has their back. Okay? The angel moves towards the back 
as well as the pillar of the cloud and literally is saying, I have your back, go, keep going, I, I got this, uh, I'll take care of Pharaoh. And so even when we're not sure about what's happening, here's a lesson, even though we don't know what's happening or why it's happening or, or how things are happening or for what purpose, all those questions that Israel surely was asking um, and that surely we ask, we ask it all the time. When the going gets rough and tough, what's important is to see that God's will and God's work are happening. God is at work. God is not asleep on the wheel. Okay? God's will and work are being accomplished. Sometimes we see it before our eyes. Sometimes. But oftentimes it's unseen. And so it requires the eyes and heart of faith which God gives. And God displays that again and again. Um, God teaches the Israelites and exhorts them and encourages them through the words of Moses and, and Aaron. And so God brings people in our lives when the going gets tough. Um, whether it be us or pastors or fellow sisters and brothers to encourage us and to keep on keeping on um, through, to, through the worship of God's people, right? God didn't leave them bereft. That's why there's those festival and feasts and the Ark of the Covenant and all of the things that they were called to do. Those were ways in which to encourage the people of God, right? And so God doesn't leave them bereft, but leaves them with people, leaves them with, with the rituals, leaves, leaves them with the writings or the, the word of uh, the word that he would deliver through Moses um, and Later on, uh, when his word is, is written down through the uh, reading and teaching and proclamation of his word, those are all the ways in which God encourages us and strengthens us. And so we see that so powerful, of course, in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, this is the New Testament. This is the first century church, um, the time of exile. Remember, this is when the Roman Empire is in power. The church is not called uh, to escape the Roman Empire. The church is called to remain, to be in exile, uh, to be right there. Um, that's why the church faced persecution. The church didn't escape. The church remained. Now, how were they to remain? They were to remain salt and light of the earth in their various locations, whether the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia, in this case, the church at Corinth. They were to... God's people were to share the gospel through words and through their life. The integrity of the gospel was how they lived out their testimony, right? If they preached and taught about the love of God and the commandments to love God and love one another, then they had to live that out in their community life to love one another. And so for the early church, they were to be faithful in their particular communities right where they were planted. And part and parcel of being God's faithful community was to attend to their life together. Now, the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the church at Corinth because there was division. There was internal division that was happening that threatened the integrity of their witness in their community, the community that was to be marked by love. And so... The Apostle Paul writes this letter and 
his subsequent letter in, in 2 Corinthians, he actually makes an allusion to, an, to another letter. And so there, there likely was three letters, but we only have um, two letters. And the church at Corinth, is, um, they're fighting amongst each other in their community. They're, challeng they're challenging the apostolic authority of Paul and his teachings. Um, they're fighting and dishonoring the Lord's table. They're eating food offered to idols and so many other matters that diluted their witness and put it into question. That's why the Apostle Paul writes the letter. And as we see in our text, or the prior chapter, chapter 9, as chapter 9 ends, where the Apostle Paul compares his own life and ministry as, as running the race, running a race, like an athlete who runs the race. And so by implication, the church at Corinth, Corinthian believers were to run the race with him. He then changes the metaphor from running the race to um, their life together to be in community, to be an exilic community is like running the race, chapter 9, or in chapter 10 in our text, that our life together is like the journey that the Israelites had with Moses. So he makes a reference to the Exodus in the Old Testament. That our life together is like a struggle, is like sojourning through the desert wilderness. Um, it is like traveling and making our passage through the Red Sea. It's like being delivered by God, being nourished by the same God, with the same food, with the same drink. That's why he says that, that the Israelites who were fed and whose thirst was quenched by the same food, by the same drink, by the same God, why does he do that? Because we are united to the Israelites in the same faith, by the same Lord, by the same God. We are being nourished as they are nourished, as they were being nourished, as they were being provided for, we likewise are in the same place. We share the same faith. We share the same Lord. And so he drives home that point that the same present struggle we face is like the struggle that the Israelites faced in the wilderness. Different contexts, different realities, but the same Lord who unites us in the same faith because, and here, here it is, that they were, the Israelites, were fed and nourished by the same Jesus Christ. See, even though Jesus Christ, his, the fullness of his presence was made in the New Testament, um, the advent of, of his, his birth on Christmas and his death and resurrection, Christ was present even in the time of Moses. Remember, go back to Luke chapter 24. That's how Jesus uh, that's his method, his hermeneutic. He understood. Um, and he, he teaches that, that he taught it to the, uh, to the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, where the text says that he taught them in scriptures, in the, in the writings of Moses and the Psalms and the, and the prophets concerning himself. So he himself, the Lord Jesus, is in the Old Testament um, as he is in the New Testament. 
And right here in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul makes reference to that, that the Israelites who were fed in the wilderness, whose thirst was quenched, Christ himself was the spiritual food. He was there. He was, a, he was the substance of what they were eating and drinking. Jesus will make reference uh, in John chapter 6, verses 48 through 51, that he is the bread of life, that even as their ancestors were fed, fed the manna from heaven, the manna that was given in the Old Testament, he is the manna. He is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. Okay? And so Moses, uh, the Apostle Paul is teaching that our journey together, when the going gets tough, when the going gets tough, God provides himself in Jesus Christ. There's that popular saying, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Like, where did that come from? Is that from a Hallmark card? The principle from that is from our text. 1 Corinthians 10, the latter part of verse 13, where it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Okay, so there's the key. It's not about our own strength or our own strategies and wisdom. Because all of those things are helpful, right? God gives us our intellect. God gives us, our, um, God gives us um, the ability to think, of course, all of those are helpful, but the key is, what, what, what really unlocks it is, as the text says, God is faithful. We can persevere, whether, whether departing, like in the Exodus, or whether remaining, like in Corinthians, we persevere because God perseveres. God, pre God preserves us. We persevere because God preserves us. We can endure because God enables us to endure. His love is steadfast and durable and is unchanging toward us. He has our back. When the going gets tough, God's strength and God's faithfulness and God himself are made even more apparent. Thanks be to God. God is faithful. When the going gets tough, God's strength and God's love are made even more manifest. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Most gracious and loving Father, thank you for your reminder that when the going gets tough, you are right there and you have always been there. Your love is steadfast. You have our backs. Reassure us of that, O Lord, that in the midst of life and faith's challenges, you are with us. You are strengthening us. You are loving us. We give you thanks and praise, O Lord, for it is in Jesus Christ we pray. And all of us say, Amen.